Welcome back to our parallel research session. Our next speaker is Gregory Birkin. Gregory has pursued graduate studies at the San Diego State University at the Cell and Molecular Biology Department since 2018. And he's working as a PhD student in Dr. Anka Siegel's and Forrest Rowell's labs since 2020. His current studies focus on phage therapy for cystic fibrosis patients enrolled in clinical trials at UC San Diego. He assesses the efficacy of phage therapy via metagenomics and bacterial culture. He's also working on the production of new theoretical and in vitro models to study investigational therapies for CF lung disease as part of his doctoral dissertation. We'd like to welcome Greg Burkin for his presentation, which is entitled New Models of CF Lung Disease. Hey there, good morning. Uh, I'm Greg Burkin, and uh, I'm a PhD candidate in the Rower Lab, uh, and I also work for Dr. Anka Segal. Um, and today I'm going to be talking to you about um, two new models of CF lung disease that um, uh, our lab is using to help us um, make uh, some new hypothetical treatment options um, as well as to test them. Okay. Um, and really quickly, I'm going to walk you through the general arc or trajectory of today's talk. Um, I'm going to spend a little time talking about Trikafka um, and how this has made uh, certain things possible um, for the research community um, to sort of be more helpful uh, to physicians by doing some personalized medicine uh, tasks. Um, I'm going to introduce a um, new uh, sort of conceptual model of cystic fibrosis uh, lung disease, um, and we're calling it the, the sort of four guilds model um, of the CF lung. And so we're breaking the microbes down into guilds. Um, then I'm going to talk about a new in vitro model um, of cystic fibrosis lung disease uh, that I have made where uh, we're taking um, artificial sputum media uh, and solidifying it into these 3D uh, bacterial culture spheres um, that allow us to grow aerobic, microaerobic, and anaerobic bacteria all in the same um, feed. And, and this is what they end up looking like in reality, just sort of um, ubers in a jar. Um, and then I'm going to talk about how I'm using these models um, to help test uh, some of these um, personalized treatments that are on the horizon for patients uh, with uh, cystic fibrosis. Okay. Um, and as the, the title of the slide would suggest, um, uh, I believe that Trikafka has made um, personalized medicine, or specifically uh, the research community um, being involved in uh, personalized medicine possible. And I think that's mostly just a, a function of the math. Um, all right. Um, so there's around 90,000 CF patients uh, in the world today anywhere from 70 to 100,000. We have 30,000 here in the US. Um, but Trikafta, uh, the CFTR modulators, um, 
can restore function to about 90% of those mutations. Um, and so if you go from a population of 90,000 to 9,000, um, and we have a population of about 3,000 uh, cystic fibrosis labs in the world, and that's based on uh, the number of authors with unique um, surnames uh, who are publishing on cystic fibrosis in the last four years. That's roughly uh, about three patients per lab. And of course, that's, uh, they're not all distributed evenly or next to each other all of the time. Um, but uh, that shift in an order of magnitude is what means that um, uh, research groups can start being involved in uh, helping physicians by providing um, metagenomic information um, and uh, finding phages or uh, constructing um, calicins, uh, which is what I do. Um, and so I'm going to talk about uh, models of cystic fibrosis today. Um, and those come in three different flavors. Uh, we have theoretical or conceptual models, and those are things that we use um, to help us think about um, the disease, how it progresses, and what uh, we can do to try and change the dynamics in a, a positive way. Uh, and so um, here's a caption from uh, one of Dr. Rower's papers um, uh, with an illustration of the climax and attack model, which is the uh, sort of conceptual model that we've been working off of for about the past 10 years. Um, where you have a resident population of anaerobic bacteria surrounded by um, another resident bacteria uh, like Pseudomonas aeruginosa that makes that anaerobic space for them. Uh, and we call that the, the climax community because they are residents. Um, and attack communities like Streptococcus, Staphylococcus, and um, eukaryotic viruses would be uh, our attack community, which can come in and cause um, uh, acute inflammation um, and acute uh, uh, exacerbations of the patient's lungs. Um, uh, one of the other flavors of a uh, model are in vitro models. Um, so test tubes, petri dishes, or in this case, uh, this is the Winograbsky column uh, method. So these are glass capillary tubes, uh, same, mostly a test tube. Um, and then we have animal models. Um, and I'm not going to talk much about animal models today. Um, and first, I'm going to actually walk us through um, the new uh, conceptual model that we have built. So there's a group of scientists that uh, convenes in Telluride, Colorado at the Telluride Science Research Conference um, every two years. And uh, this is a consensus um, of those scientists. We've built a uh, model or a conceptual model of cystic fibrosis lung disease um, and how it progresses by breaking the microbes into functional gills based on their um, uh, what they eat and how they interact with the patient's lungs. Um, and so uh, the way we would actually do this is we would take um, a sputum metagenome. So this is a, uh, a DNA extraction from a patient's sputum um, that allows us to run all of those pieces of DNA through a taxonomic assignment software. Um, 
where we can then analyze it to see relative abundance, like what is the most abundant microbe. Um, <clears throat> and we can sort of see something like, uh, like this might pop up, that we might have maybe 29% Candida albicans, 10% Pseudomonas uh, aeruginosa reeds, 8% uh, Vilanella parvula, an anaerobe, um, and 7% DNA um, from an adenovirus, which is a, a lytic um, upper respiratory virus. Um, then we would assemble those genomes, so um, go through a process of stitching all the pieces back together uh, so that they look like a proper genome so that we can annotate those. Uh, so figure out what genes are actually written onto that uh, string of uh, genetic code. Um, and we use those lists of genes um, present in a given microbe um, to sort of bin these microbes into their functional categories. Um, and you can see here they sort of pop out um, to the sort of legs of this page here. Um, and so we have four groups, the first of which are the nihilists. Um, and so when you think of a nihilist pathogen, um, these are the ones that would burn it all down um, because they really don't care about the, the longevity of the host or they are not well adapted to being in a host and therefore, or this host, so they uh, cause an outsized uh, exacerbation. This happens in normal people too. You can think of SARS-CoV-2 or strep phylogeny. Um, the first CF specific group are brewers. Um, and these are any microbe, uh, eukaryotic or bacterial, that can ferment mucin and turn it into something that another microbe can eat. Um, and then we have drunkers, of course. Uh, if you have a brewer, you're going to have a drunker. And these are the bacteria that live off of those fermentation products produced by the brewers. Um, and these are things you would think of like uh, Pseudomonas, Acromobacter, Percolaria. Um, they're, they're biofilm building gram-negative bacteria. And then you have the uh, putrefying guild. Um, and these are bacteria that have anaerobic metabolisms that produce putrid byproducts. Uh, things like putrescine, um, spermine, spermidine, um, especially uh, putrescine. Um, and so a couple of those would be things like bilinella or Prevacella, which are um, I, I see pretty commonly in CFSPD. Um, and, and so instead of illustrating this with a sort of um, PowerPoint type caption, um, like the, the previous iteration, my boss, Dr. Rower, um, has commissioned a series of paintings uh, to illustrate this by a longtime friend of the lab and illustrator of the lab, um, Ben Darby. Um, and I'm going to go through each one of these panels um, right now. Um, and so the first panel uh, is something that allows us to contrast with a healthy airway. Um, and what you can see is that you have uh, mucus flowing freely across the epithelial cells. Um, and they will carry the debris, the microbes, out of the lungs uh, along the surface of those epithelial cells uh, because the cilia um, can just beat and move it away. Um, and because this uh, mucin is moving so quickly, um, 
microbes are not actually able to become resident or to colonize the area permanently. Um, uh, but uh, the second panel um, is sort of uh, a diseased lung, but a diseased lung uh, with maybe some colonization of bacteria, but mostly the problem is nihilus. Um, and in this case, nihilus are not a CF-specific guilt. Um, anyone can have a pulmonary exacerbation when exposed to a nihilus. Um, and in this case, what we uh, had depicted here is um, probably what you guys can recognize is SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19 or uh, the coronavirus. Um, and so you can think of uh, nihilus as being pathogens that are a sort of lone wolf. Uh, they can cause a lot of problems all by themselves. Uh, and they usually have an intracellular lifestyle, a lytic lifestyle, where they produce cytotoxic proteins. And the cytotoxic pro proteins, I'm thinking, uh, things like a homolysin from strep pyogenes or um, uh, vibrio toxin from uh, vibrio cholerae or zonulocludens toxin um, uh, or a shiga toxin, um, all of which can be highly damaging to human epithelial cells. Um, and then we come to the first uh, CF-specific um, depiction here. Um, and what you can see is a sort of young CFR looking lung. So you have colonization, um, but in this case, it's mostly dominated by uh, the guild of pathogens called the brewers um, with a sort of slight colonization um, from the, uh, the drinkers. Um, and so you can think of the brewers um, as uh, either bacteria or eukaryotes, and so the eukaryotes could be things like candida or maybe aspergillus, which um, can cleave uh, the sugars off of the mucin molecules themselves um, outside of their cells and make them available to other microbes, or things like staphylococcus and streptococcus, which can uh, break down those uh, mucins and turn them into lactate, acetate, propionate, some short chain fatty acids that uh, will feed the drunkards. Um, and these drunkers are kind of the uh, pathogens that get the most attention in uh, the CF microbial world, uh, things like Pseudomonas, Echlonobacter, Berkeldaria. Um, uh, and these are the ones that are sort of building biofilms uh, and allowing our uh, last um, guilds to, to actually uh, persist in the lungs. Um, and so in this, in this depiction, what you can see is that we have uh, Staphylococcus aureus, that's uh, the yellow here. Um, Streptococcus uh, are these purple microbes here. A little bit of a lag. And these are these sort of green um, microbes depicted here uh, also uh, candida, I guess you could also think of as thrush, I think is a common name. Um, and then you have uh, pseudomonas, uh, and there are those uh, blue rods there. Um, and then we have a further progression 
uh, a sort of young CF lung towards a putrefied sputum um, coagulation, which is causing inflammation um, and cell death. Um, so in this case, you have all three CF-specific builds. You have um, the Brewers, uh, that's your Staphylococcus, your Candida, um, <clears throat> and your Streptococcus here, um, which are feeding the trunkers here, the, the blue microbes, um, that are drawing down enough oxygen that underneath them, you're starting to see the prolif uh, proliferation of putrefiers. And putrefiers are bacteria that produce uh, toxic polyamines, um, like putrescine. Um, and these toxic polyamines, though they are uh, naturally present, um, it, it, all cells produce them. Um, when you have a sort of high dwell time, high microbial load, you can reach toxic levels. Um, or you can just cause a lot more uh, inflammation and neutrophil infiltration, causing more scarring. Um, and the, the causative agent uh, that we've decided to depict here is Bilonella, Bilonella parvula. You can see it here um, depicted. And the putrescine uh, is actually being sort of represented by this sort of dead fish because it makes a sort of dead fish smell. Okay. Um, I'm going to talk pretty briefly um, about animal models. Um, and that is because uh, in terms of animal models, we have a lot of them. Uh, they vary from zebrafish to sheep. Um, but uh, they vary in their ability to recapitulate uh, CF lung disease. Um, and this comes from a paper from the American Journal of uh, pathology uh, in 2021, but it lays out that uh, there is a sort of clear divide between animals that are good for longitudinal, long-term, and large statistically powered studies like rats and mice that are not good at translating to humans. And then when we have um, larger animals that are better at replicating the disease, um, are not good for longitudinal or being able to do a long-term study, um, pigs specifically, they're the best model, but the, the piglets don't live very long um, under CF lung disease conditions. Um, and it's hard to keep enough uh, of the porcine models uh, in a lab setting to do a large statistically powered study. Um, which is why specifically me, I'm working on uh, some really pretty elaborate in vitro models that can help us overcome, um, maybe uh, try to reach into that longitudinal study and large statistical um, studies group, uh, with in vitro models. Um, and so for those of you who are not familiar with uh, our lab's uh, Winogradsky-based uh, CF sputum capillary system, um, this is our sort of old in vitro model of cystic fibrosis, where we take a, uh, an artificial sputum media that we think uh, is similar to CF sputum, and we add indicators to it uh, that allow us to see um, features of the chemistry going on inside of the tubes. Uh, we inoculate it either with sputum directly from a patient, uh, just a small bit of sputum mixed with a lot of media, um, 
or we use a pure culture of bacteria. Um, and then we fill those capillary tubes and put them in the incubator. Um, and then we can observe the indicators to see what's going on inside of those um, capillary tubes. Um, and we can also see uh, gas production. And an example of this from uh, work that uh, Robbie Quinn and uh, Jan Wei did was, if you take Pseudomonas aeruginosa um, and you load it into this artificial student media and you monitor pH, the redox levels, plugging and gas production, you can see that pH, purple means neutral. Um, redox, purple also means high redox. Um, this is Comassi blue, so you can see protein aggregation. Um, and what you see is that Pseudomonas by itself is not capable of causing these uh, shifts in uh, pH and redox and causing this plugging and gas production. But there is something in sputum at exacerbation that's doing that. Um, but there are three problems with this model if we're going to try and use it to sort of fill the gap that uh, animals have left. Um, it's not longitudinal. It only lasts for 48 hours. Um, the nutrient profile is uh, actually incorrect. It's not actually representative of uh, CF sputum. Um, and this one is highly anaerobic. Uh, and that's due to the physical dimensions. It's about 90% anaerobic. Um, and so the first thing I tried to tackle was how close are we um, in terms of our uh, artificial sputum recipe to the nutrient profile of real sputum. And so what you can see here on the y-axis is milligrams per mil. Um, and I've broken that down into carbohydrates, proteins, lipids, and DNA. Um, and this data comes from a paper uh, published by uh, Chance and Mahan in 2020. Um, uh, and what you can see is that the values of these um, uh, of real CF sputum are really quite high in comparison. It's sort of a mountain in terms of nutrients, whereas we have a, a valley or a dearth of nutrients in our artificial sputum media. Um, and just for uh, fun um, and a, a quick reference, conceptually, um, if you compare cystic fibrosis sputum to a food that we would normally think of as being high protein um, and high fat, uh, like salmon, it's actually nowhere near. Uh, it's just like a little baby mountain here, um, whereas actually uh, CF sputum is uh, more than twice as nutrient dense. Um, and the closest food that comes to it, again, this is just kind of for fun, um, would actually be Parmesan cheese. Uh, it is uh, much higher in fat and much higher in protein um, per weight uh, than, or per volume, excuse me, than um, uh, things like salmon or our uh, old artificial sputum media. Um, so I've reformulated the artificial sputum media so now that it uh, contains uh, the exact same nutrient profile of real CF sputum. Okay. Um, and one of the other issues um, that that model had was that it is too anaerobic. Um, and I went through a bit of a process to try and determine 
what is the right amount of anaerobic. And as the title would suggest, the, the right amount is right around 40% anaerobic, but I'm gonna walk you through the process of uh, how we got there. Um, and so you can imagine an airway of interest. This is a depiction of um, uh, an airway in the fifth generation of the lungs, which would be five millimeters by 10 millimeters. And uh, if you treat it like a cylinder, you can calculate the volume. Um, but in order to figure out how much of that is anaerobic, um, I need to have some actual data about what microbialized sputum should look like in terms of how far oxygen can penetrate. Um, and so I made some uh, of these uh, WinCF beads and I used an oxygen probe um, to actually measure how far oxygen can penetrate. Um, once it is thoroughly microbialized. And so there was uh, three times, 3.3 uh, times 10 to the 10. So a lot uh, of microbes, um, highly packed, highly um, microbialized uh, artificial sputum. And so uh, it could only penetrate about 2.25 millimeters down before it became uh, essentially anaerobic. Um, and if I can, uh, extrapolate that to an airway that is plugged up to a surface and air uh, is available here, then what you could see is that I have a cylinder within a cylinder, which allows me to calculate the uh, percent of anaerobic volume. Um, and that would look something like 44%. Um, and there is a small space, which is not entirely anaerobic, it's microaerobic, or should be because a small amount of oxygen uh, will actually make it through the epithelial cells um, uh, from the, the bloodstream on the other side. Uh, and so this allows me to make um, a WinCF bead, um, one of these sort of uh, mucus globs um, that has the exact same proportions uh, in terms of anaerobic to aerobic volume. Uh, and that would just take a 19 millimeter bead. Um, and the way that I do this in real life um, is that I take that artificial sputum media and I add a solidifying agent. Uh, the solidifying agent that I use is sodium alginate. Uh, this is actually a pretty common ingredient in food. It can be extracted from uh, seaweed, but it's also, um, if you've heard of mucoid pseudomonas, it's what makes mucoid pseudomonas mucoid. Uh, it's highly present in uh, cystic fibrosis sputum. Um, but what's great about it, it's a thickening agent that makes things more viscous until you add calcium chloride. Um, and if you add calcium chloride, this stuff actually becomes a solid and will retain its shape. Um, and so what I do is I pour a, a mold made out of agar impregnated with calcium chloride that allows me to make um, my model into whatever shape or size uh, I would like. Um, and then I can move those from uh, their mold uh, into a Petri dish, which allows me to um, uh, conduct experiments on them and uh, see how the microbes grow uh, inside of them and see if we can try and keep them from growing. Okay. So, uh, we have 
several emerging treatment options. Uh, the first one I'm going to talk about today is phage therapy. Um, I know there's a lot of interest in phage therapy um, because the phage doesn't care about antimicrobial resistance. Um, a phage, uh, if it's a lytic phage or if it's a phage that decides to be lytic, um, then whether or not your, your microbe is highly uh, resistant or pan-resistant to uh, known uh, small molecule um, antibiotics, then uh, it can still kill them. Um, Though, from my perspective, um, as a microbial ecologist, what, uh, what I would like to study and I would like to understand um, is not only how I can use a phage to um, kill one microbe um, in a cystic fibrosis lung, but actually how can I use this to affect the microbial ecology in a way that might actually help the patients. Uh, because um, in terms of ecology, if you empty a niche, but you haven't removed the niche, it will get filled by something else. Um, and so I have done an experiment where I made these beads. Um, and I have a control group and I have a phage treatment group. Um, and what's good about these beads is it allows me to test things that you could never test in a patient. Um, and so I inoculated this WinCF bead, the sputum, from a patient. Um, and I incubated them at 37 degrees C. Uh, and then I would sacrifice a number of beads, three beads every day, uh, or at uh, time points in the study, to see how many colony forming units were growing in those beads at that time. Um, and then I treated them instead of with a cocktail of maybe one or two phages against a single pathogen uh, that we know lives in this sputum, I tried to find a phage for every pathogen that uh, we know is in this sputum because I had a metagenome of the sputum before I started this experiment. Um, and so this included every phage in our library. Um, and this also included uh, filter sterilized um, agnostic phage sources, uh, meaning things like sewage, river water, lake water, ocean water, um, sometimes food, compost, and things like that. Uh, where we find a lot of lytic phages. Um, and so this way, there should have been a phage for most of the bacteria that were present in this patient's um, sputum metagenome. Um, and then I treated that uh, mucus plug model uh, with the phage cocktail. Um, and that's what is here in orange uh, on this day. Um, and what I saw was that there was essentially statistically no difference um, in the phage or no phage uh, control, um, but that sometimes total microbial load uh, it, it is very erratic. Um, 
which is also something that we see in cystic fibrosis uh, sputum samples. Um, so this, again, this, this doesn't have uh, a lot of bearing on how uh, phage therapy is going to do in the clinic or uh, cystic fibrosis patients. This is specifically um, just me showing you how um, I can use this new model to test things that might or might not work, which um, can help us make better treatments in the future um, and help us understand what's going on in uh, cystic fibrosis sputum. Um, and that this um, system is also radic um, in terms of the um, microbial load from day to day uh, is actually a good sign in my mind because it means I'm actually recapitulating uh, what we see in a real patient. And in terms of being able to accomplish um, a longitudinal study that remains dynamic um, in uh, an in vitro system, this is what gives me hope um, for this for this system, as well as uh, my next topic, um, which is so far a hypothetical treatment option. Uh, there, this is not in the clinic yet, um, but there is uh, good news on this front, and I'm here to tell you um, about that today. Um, and so Talison therapy, uh, you can think of a Talison as a phage without a head. So essentially, this is the same as that phage before, but it doesn't have a capsid uh, that contains DNA, um, which means that it cannot reproduce um, and it will bind to a target and it will just kill it. Okay, uh, and so our lab has a relationship. We have a material transfer agreement um, from Pylon Biosciences um, and they have uh, allowed us to use their avidison construct um, specifically to try and retool that uh, talosin, which normally comes from Pseudomonas, uh, to kill Stenotrophomonas multifilia. Um, and here's a picture of what that looks like. It's um, a protein structure uh, that has uh, essentially a spring-loaded harpoon that you can sort of see here. Um, this holds energy, which will push the harpoon through um, the bacterial cell membrane and the cell wall. Um, but it has to bind very specifically to one type of bacteria, and that's facilitated by whatever's on the end of these tail fibers and at the tip of this tail spike here. So it has to actually sit down on a bacterial surface um, and bind before it will uh, release its payload. Um, and so uh, my goal since I started this project uh, in the late summer of 2020 has been to take that construct and to stitch um, a tail spike, uh, which comes from a, a phage onto uh, this avidison construct, a phage that's specific to killing um, Stenotrophomonas multifilia. Okay. Um, and the reason that we think that this can be safer than a phage in general um, is that since they cannot reproduce, you can actually control the dose. A phage 
will amplify inside of the host, um, which is which can be a good thing, um, or it could also be a bad thing in case it leads to uh, the release of too much um, endotoxin all at once. Um, and, and so in this case, you can moderate the dose. Um, because it has no genome, it also cannot conduct uh, horizontal gene transfer, um, meaning it cannot pass a, a gene for one of those toxins I was talking about before from one microbe to another. And it also can't pass antibiotic resistance genes from one to another, with, uh, which phages are uh, quite notorious for doing. Um, and it can only kill. A, a phage has a choice, or a lot of them have a choice. Some are obligate lytic, um, but uh, some phages have the option to be temperate, uh, meaning that they can choose to kill or not to kill. This talosin can only kill. Um, and as of Monday morning of uh, this past week, um, an anti-stenotropomonas talosin was born. Um, I have actually managed to build this thing, uh, though it started in uh, the, the summer of 2020. Um, and so in order to get there, uh, it's actually kind of a long process and I'm gonna walk you through that before I show you the data. Um, and so the very first thing you have to do is you have to find a phage that can actually kill Stenotrophomonas multifilum. Um, and not only do you have to find one that can kill it, but you have to find one where you can recognize the tail spike. Um, because you're gonna take that tail spike and you are going to string it onto the end of that tail fiber so that it will sit down onto a new bacteria and kill that bacteria. Um, and you have to amplify that up using PCR, and then you have to assemble it um, into a plasmid that will create a fusion protein um, between this tail fiber and your new tail spike that allows you to change the specificity of this bacteria killing machine, this headless phage. Um, and it's important that that plasmid be inducible so that you can produce a lot of it all at once, meaning you can add something to the bacteria and it will produce a ton of this protein for you. Um, you need to transform that or put that plasmid, that DNA into a bacterial host strain that has the rest of the structural genes of that talosin construct. And then you need to run the induction um, and that'll produce a ton of talosin for you. Uh, and then you take that uh, supernatant from that induction event, um, and you can add that to your target strain of bacteria. Um, and then you can measure the amount of bacteria that were killed compared to a negative control. Um, and that's what I did Monday morning. Um, and here is the actual data um, to support that I have made a functional Stenotrophomonas multifilia killing um, Talosin. Uh, what's here on the y-axis, these are the number of colonies on the plate that I counted. So a colony uh, means that there was a bacteria present. Um, and what I did was I incubated the Stenotrophomonas multifilia with the talosins for 30 minutes, and then I diluted it to 10 to the negative four, or 10,000 times. 
Um, and then I took a 100 microliter uh, sample of that dilution and I spread it on a plate of nutrient agar. Um, and wherever there was a bacteria, I would see a colony. <clears throat> and the negative control here in blue gave me about 66 million colony forming units per mil. Um, but the talus in treatment gave me just five million or uh, 50 million uh, colony forming units per mil or five times 10 to the seven, which means that that induction event was able to produce about uh, 10 to 15 million talus in killing units. Um, which uh, is, is pretty exciting um, and uh, is actually kind of um, a, a big step forward in this specific um, sort of uh, research field or well, in this research direction. Um, and I want to acknowledge uh, everyone in uh, the Rower Lab and uh, the Segal Lab. Um, I have two bosses, uh, Dr. Forrest Rower and Dr. Anka Segal. Um, I wanna make a special um, uh, shout out to Cole Souza and Hannah Jalazadeh who uh, are both uh, working with me uh, pretty closely and did a lot of the work in producing that talisman. Um, and of course, uh, my funder is the Cystic Fibrosis Research Institute. And thank you very much. And I am open for questions and I will uh, navigate back to whichever slide uh, anybody has a question about. Greg, thank you so much for your incredible presentation. Uh, so I think we have about seven minutes left for um, some Q&As. Let me just go through here. Um, so I'm going to read the comments that are in the chat right now. So Devin Wakefield is commenting, just now my doctor told me that prioritizing treating the brewers doesn't seem to have a big impact in CF care. Is that right? <laughs> is there not much clinical evidence to support this model or does this mean that we just don't have great antibiotics treatments for fighting brewers or will the other colonizing bacteria still be able to grow in the lungs even if the brewers are killed off um so the Brewers, so it depends on which brewer you're talking about. So the brewer Candida albicans or uh, possibly Aspergillus, uh, these are eukaryotes. Um, and uh, as I understand uh, in speaking with um, one of my committee members, um, uh, Dr. Conrad in, at uh, UCSD, is that there aren't great treatment options for uh, things like Candida because they're also a eukaryote and we're a eukaryote. Um, but in terms of trying to treat uh, the brewers, um, things like Staphylococcus and uh, Streptococcus, uh, I would say that it probably, if you're looking to try and reduce the amount of brewers, it may be that um, it, it really depends on which brewer you're talking about. Staphylococcus and streptococcus, you could probably 
have a better impact on reducing the number of those using something like hyperbaric oxygen therapy or just uh, hyperoxic uh, conditions uh, because these are mostly microaerobic or uh, uh, back anaerobic bacteria. Uh, they are um, they like the the oxygen less. Um, that's uh, that would be what I would think. Um, All right. So um, then we have a question from Scooter Thornton just now. Is there a process to determine how many tensins will be required to eliminate an infection in a patient? That is the next experiment on my docket. I will be using uh, our new in vitro model um, to test exactly that. Um, so that'll be just next, uh, this upcoming week. I'll, I'll start work on that. So then we have another question from Devin Wakefield. Uh, if oxygen has a hard time penetrating in the mucus, in mucus plugs, does that also imply that inhaled antibiotics have a hard time penetrating as well? What can patients do to combat this? Um, the rate of diffusion through um, that microbialized mucus uh, is not necessarily hindered by the, um, the, the microbes or the density itself. It, it's, more, uh, in, it's more dependent on the number of microbes and their metabolism drawing down the oxygen. And so uh, if you have a small molecule, uh, an aqueous small molecule, uh, it should be able to make it uh, through uh, or at least some distance into a um, uh, into the substrate. Though the the issue I think you would run into is more to do with anaerobic cells um, and anaerobic, excuse me, uh, facultative anaerobic bacteria that can be persisters, uh, meaning that they um, uh, when their metabolism shuts down uh, and they start doing low efficiency anaerobic metabolisms, this allows them to sort of persist past the anaerobic or uh, the antibiotic treatment. Uh, this is something I've seen with microbial strains again and again, is that the uh, inhibitory or bactericidal concentration is much higher if you um, are growing them anaerobically. Okay, thank you. So we have a next question from Naren Kumar. Um, how well do tailsins penetrate the plug? Um, I, I wouldn't know yet. Um, that's something that I'm going to have to test. Um, and again, uh, they didn't exist until, uh, uh, these tailsins did not exist until um, Monday morning. Well, <laughs> thank you for this wet ink data. So uh, then we have one question for Martina Gensch. Uh, you mentioned that you are rebuilding mucus in vitro. Are you taking into account the different mucin concentrations in CF versus non-CF mucus? Uh, yes, uh, the model is uh, the, um, uh, the recipe is specifically tailored to uh, cystic fibrosis uh, patient sputum. And, and that's determined empirically uh, and that paper uh, by Chance and Mahaney, where they took uh, 468 different sputum samples um, and then uh, 
told us what the nutrient values were uh, and what the like constituents were. And so it's all based on CF sputum, not normal sputum. Okay, Gregory, so we don't have any more questions coming in. I think we have one minute remaining. And let me thank you from the bottom of my heart for your incredible presentation that was very artsy, very scientific, and we welcome you to the CFI research community. We were so grateful to have you. Uh, and uh, yeah, thank you again for this incredible presentation. And I would like now to take a 35 minute break. Uh, so feel free to explore the exhibitor hall or check out the activities in the lounge. Uh, and I hear we will reconvene here at 12.45 Pacific, 3.45 Eastern time for the final research presentation. Thank you all and see you in 35 minutes. Bye-bye.